So, John chapter 15. This is a heavy passage. So, full disclosure, this morning I got here really late. Um, so late, in fact, that even the grosses saw me. So that's, that's pretty late. And I, I got here, like, um, that was a joke. But I, I got here really late. And um, part of this, because this is just such a heavy passage, I've been wrestling with it. And it was kind of funny when I walked in, um, Robbie told me that when I wasn't here and not here at my normal time and then not, still not here and still not here and still not here, that Christoph said to Robbie, like, hey, put me in, coach. I'm ready. I'm ready to go. What passage are we preaching this morning? And Robbie said, the world hates you. And Christoph said, I retract my offer. <laughs> so I, I understand this is a heavy passage. And it's a passage that can be misused and twisted in our own hearts. It is so tempting to look at this passage and to use it to, to defend ourselves and to justify ourselves and, and to even create kind of a victim mentality in the church but I just want to be really careful. And, and my, my commitment to you is I'm going to do the best job that I can to be faithful to what Jesus is actually saying here. And I just want to look at this passage and say, okay, what, what is Jesus actually saying? Who, who is he saying is, is hating, doing the hating? Why is that hatred happening? And then why is he even telling us? So that's kind of the, the outline I want to go through. So I want to read this passage. So I would encourage you to follow along. And then we're going to pray, and then I'm going to attempt to address these things. John chapter 15, starting in verse 18. Jesus says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my Father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness." Because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Let's pray together. Father, we ask for your help. Give us discernment to understand your word 
that is spoken so clearly here through Jesus. Give us eyes to see what you are doing. Give us hearts that would love it and submit to you in it. Give us an idea of how you want us to live in light of passages like this. God, protect us from from twisting of this. Protect me from speaking anything that would be a twisting of this. Protect us from from, um, our hearts, from wanting to take it in a direction that, that you don't. God, help us to be faithful In Jesus' name, amen. So passages like this feel very real right now, I think, as you're reading through it and and looking at what's going on in, in the world. And like I said, we can sometimes take a passage like this and say, like, well, see, that's, that's why people are opposed to me. That's what's happening in the world. They're, they're against us as Christians, and so, therefore, like Jesus said this was going to happen, and there, there are pieces of truth in that. There are some things that are fitting and, and make sense. But I, I, like I said, I want to I make sure that we are looking at what Jesus is saying about who he's talking about. Why will this hatred come? And why he's actually telling us. Why he's saying this to his disciples. So first, it's, it's who will actually hate us. And it can be a little confusing because he talks about the world. And you even have that heading. Most of you probably have a heading in your Bible that says the hatred of the world. Which I think is a strange, a strange heading. Because if you just read that he- heading, you might think like we are to hate the world. But if you have been following Jesus at all, you know that that's not really the case, that that's not necessarily the context here. And, um, but then we could say like, oh no, no, that the world hates us, but then we kind of give our own definition of what we think the world is and we'll label, I find that we'll often look at this passage and label the world as anybody that we disagree with. And so we can say like, yep, that's why, that's why that person um, acts like they hate me or that's why they hate me because I disagree with them. But we get like a little plot twist right here at the beginning and get it out of the way. The world Jesus is talking about is the religious world. The world he's talking about is not the non-believers. It's not the atheists. Or to put it in our terms, like, you know, it's not, it's not atheists. It's not, it's not the Marxists. It's not the socialists. It's not the Roman government. It's the religious. And we know that because in Chapter 16, he says what they're going to do. He tells them, he's he's telling them, this is what's going to happen to you. And he tells them that they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming whenever whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. Well, who's putting them out of the synagogues? The Roman government? No. Who's doing the killing? You think, you think a Roman soldier cares about offering service to God? No. It's the religious authorities. Who got to a place where they believed that the way to honor God was to have Jesus murdered. And we should be able to see this by the fact that Jesus says, he also talks about how they hated me. He said, if they hated me, they'll hate you. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. Well, who is doing that? 
Like, how did the Roman government feel about Jesus? He's kind of an oddity. They were curious, fascinated, but they didn't hate him. It was the religious people who hated him. I'm not saying that, that hatred can't come from the secular world. That's, that's not the point. It's not the point to say that, okay, well, if we're, if we're doing everything the way Jesus tells us, then the non-believing world will love us. That's not, that's not my point. What I'm saying is in this passage, this is who Jesus is talking about. And this is a common theme that he's addressing in these chapters, and it will be a common theme in this series, which is that the biggest threats to the church come from within the church. The biggest threat to the purity of the gospel is not criticisms found outside of the church. It's not the attacks of of atheistic apologists who want to try to dismantle the Christian faith. That's not the biggest threat to the purity of the gospel. The biggest threat to the purity of the gospel come from the preaching within the church, from the discipling within the church. The biggest threat to our unity is not from out, attacks from outsiders, but from division from within. I hope that you are tired of hearing me say this because it means I might be getting close to saying it enough. But the problem is not the hardness of hearts out there. It is the hardness of hearts in here. That is the crossroads we are at in our culture. That is the problem that we are facing And it is the problem that Jesus is addressing here. So that's that's who. Why? And don't get too excited. The first point was supposed to be the shortest. So why? How is this so? Like why why would they actually hate him? Why would they hate us then? By extension, it's it's one thing for Jesus to say, hey, look, they hated me, but don't worry. Once I rise from the dead, then everything will be fine and you guys will be like celebrities. You'll be heroes. You'd kind of think that would be the way that it would work, right? But he doesn't say that. He says they're going to hate me in the same way. Well, why did they hate Jesus? They hated Jesus because he messed up the world they created. And I intend that irony there. They hated Jesus because Jesus messed up the world that they created. Now, we know from a gospel standpoint, when we talk about the gospel, we talk about creation, fall, redemption, renewal, glory. We would say, okay, God created the heavens and the earth, and we messed it up with the fall, right? We're all on the same page with that? And what I'm saying to you is that for the religious authorities of the day, it was flipped for them. In their minds, and really the way that they lived, was they created their own little world. And now the gospel that was the power to save and meant for redemption destroyed their world. We've talked about this before, that if you, if you think Jesus is just going to come into your life and it's just going to be like, I'm going to add Jesus to my life. And now all of my pursuits, all the things that I was doing in my life now will just be better. Now they'll be blessed by God because I believe in Jesus and I go to church and I read my Bible. Then you're mistaken. Jesus will wreck you. He will obliterate all the things that you thought you could put your hope in and your faith in, and he will do it out of his love for you, for your good, because he will take your house that was built on sand, and he will level it to the ground 
so that he can build you a house built on the rock that will never perish and never go away. So that's what Jesus does. See, the Pharisees had their world set. They had power and respect. And they believed they had God's approval for those things. But they had created for themselves their own rules, their own laws, their own world. They were their, they were their own justification, their own salvation, their own righteousness. And Jesus comes along and preaches the gospel. And the gospel tears it apart. That's why he says in verse 22, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. That's admittedly a little confusing. I don't have time to really go into that altogether. But that whole guilt of sin is partly knowing and being aware of that. And so they were thinking themselves faithful to God. It's not like they said, oh, look at us. We're getting away with creating our own world. They believed the world they had created was honoring to God. Which should be a warning to all of us that just because you and I think what we are doing is honoring to God doesn't make it so. And so Jesus says, I came to them and I spoke to them. And because I spoke to them, they now have no excuse. It shatters their self-idolatry. Notice, notice the things that make them angry. I mean, they, they're so angry that they want to kill him. And it's fascinating to me when the Gospels record that they decided to kill him. One of those examples is in Matthew 12 when there's a man with a withered hand and it's on the Sabbath. And Jesus looks at the man and he ends up healing him. He says, like, is it, is it lawful? Like, you're, you're going you're gonna to try to catch me on this. Is this lawful to do good, you know, to save life, to destroy it? He talks about that in different times, in different ways with the Sabbath. But here, he, he, he says to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. I mean, just imagine for a second what it would have been like to be angry and hate Jesus and try to build a case with people who don't know anything about what's going on. This Jesus has to be stopped. Or why? Why? What did he do? Get this. He healed a man. Wait, why is that bad? Oh, it's bad. Do you see the confusion? They, so were, they were so wrapped in their own little world, their own little think tank, their own little like echo chamber where they believed that the things that were prophesied, the things that the, the Old Testament, the scriptures that they claimed to love said were going to happen and they're watching it and they convinced themselves and one another that he had to be destroyed. That's why they hated him. This is one of the obstacles and the challenges we have in the world today. It's happening right now all over again. Look, the, there are a lot of blessings that come with living in a country that has had a strong Christian influence. But there are dangers as well. See, the, the problem with living in a country where Christianity is the popular religion is that it's popular to be a Christian. And that is dangerous. There are many in our country who have claimed Christianity not because of Jesus, but because of the worldly benefits. 
I don't know where I heard this first, but I, I, I love it as a great description, that they, they have bought into the kingdom, but they want no part of the king. They bought into this idea of this, this certain morality and certain way that things should function and the way that then I can succeed in the midst of that world, but they want no part of Jesus. They don't want to go about it in the way of Jesus. They don't want to receive the actual blessings from Jesus. If you cannot look at the landscape of evangelical Christianity today and see the similarities with the Pharisees, then I don't know what to tell you. You're likely to not really like the rest of this message. But this is hard. It's hard for me to look at this and see all this happen and then to wonder, like, okay, what, what part am I playing in this? And what part am I not? Like, where, where am I supposed, like, Jesus, help me figure this out. But look at these parallels. In the, in, in the Pharisaical kingdom, the man-made Pharisaical kingdom of Jesus' day, they valued stances over people. It was more important to the Pharisees to make sure it was clear where they stood on issues than to actually love the person in front of them. They demonstrated this over and over and over again. And points were gained by taking stances on those values and demonstrating how above others you are. That's how you get somebody that comes into the altar and say, God, I thank you that I am not a sinner like this guy over here. That's how you can say that and not think that you're being ironic. Because you believe that that's what gets you points. By fully demonstrating, no, 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 I'm not one of them. In the Pharisaical man-made kingdom, knowledge was more important than love. They wouldn't point to how they loved their neighbor. They would point to how they could talk about loving their neighbor and how they could build arguments around that. And power goes to the one who is able to make himself look the holiest. And so therefore, whatever, whatever they did... They had to keep a tight hold on that morally superior position. So if Jesus confronted them on anything, the last thing they could do was say, oh, you know what, that's a good point. You may be right. Because to do that would be to give up their standing as the more morally superior person. So if you were caught in anything like that, what the Pharisees had to do was they had to defend and deflect and twist things in some way so that they would come out on top. Does this sound familiar at all? Do you look around with a grieving heart at all and say, oh, that sounds really familiar? And when this man-made kingdom is threatened in that way and they feel their grip on it slipping, they will fight for it. They will use shame and guilt and conspiracy theories. This is what they did to Jesus. They would bully people saying that they knew the law and they were speaking the truth. They would hold themselves up as the holy ones and disparage others for daring to try to come to God and believing that they could possibly know God and ultimately, they would plot and scheme on how to destroy. And in all of it, they would think that they were honoring God. 
Let me ask you something. In all the New Testament, how many times does the Bible instruct us that in order to advance the gospel of the kingdom, that we are to use tools like shaming and disparaging, that we are to plot and scheme to destroy those who would speak against the gospel? I'll give you a hint. It's between one and negative one. It never happens. So let me ask you. I mean, let's be honest about this for a second. Just in our own minds and our hearts. This is one of the benefits of masks. I, I barely can even see your facial expression. I'm already blinded by lights. Like, I don't know. But let me ask you have, you, have you participated in that kind of thinking at any point in the last few years? Have you had feelings of, man, I want to I see them fall? Had feelings of vindication or self-justification? Like, this, this is a safe place here. If you have felt that way, you're not alone. I've also had those feelings over the last few years. But here's my goal. My goal isn't to then call that out so then I can just shame you and beat you over the head with it and say, stop doing that. My goal for you and for me as I was preparing for this was to say, that is the threat to the church. That we could all, as, as a body of believers who love Jesus and want to worship him, that we would say, that is the threat that is what Jesus is talking about as the world. The biggest threat to the ministry of Jesus was not the adulterers and the thieving tax collectors and the heathens running around sinning. It was the people who claimed to know God but were far from him. It was the religious world who had built their own kingdom. We need to be willing to ask those hard questions. We need to be willing to even give up what we thought was kind of our standing or our positioning because we aren't the ones with the morally superior ground. Jesus is. And our submission to him is what is called for. I mean, one way to know if you've been in that situation is to ask yourself, what, what fruit is produced in me when, when the things that I value in my life are threatened. Because there are things being threatened. But what is the fruit that comes out? I'll, I'll tell you what, what Scripture tells us should be. Grief, sadness, lament. Those are all responses that demonstrate a, a proper standing before God, a proper understanding of how these things work. But the fruit of the enemy is vindictiveness and fear and control. Those are fruits of the flesh. So I would just say that as we look at this passage, and Jesus, what he's doing here is he's preparing us. And so to be prepared, one of the things we have to do is to clearly state, I am aligned with Jesus. 
Not by extension, Jesus by extension through these other things that I'm actually aligned with, but I am aligned with Jesus. And that starts with repentance. Look, if you have never in your flesh bristled at the words of Jesus, then I would say you've never really died to yourself and you don't understand what he's saying. I would say you found a compromise. You figured out a way to build your kingdom so that the words of Jesus can kind of be explained, be understood in light of this, kind of fit in and around it, but you haven't actually looked at him and said, okay, what are you actually calling me to? But if you have, like if you've read Scripture especially in these last few years and, and, and today, in this last week, if you've been reading through the Bible and you look at it and you're reading in the Gospel of Luke and you say, oh my goodness, if you, if you find your heart grieving and you're saying, wait, if this is true, then this, this thing that I thought or maybe this way that I've been acting or this thing that I've believed, like that, that can't actually be true. Jesus is really clear why the world will hate us. And it's not because we say hard things. It's because we don't belong to the world. And when people followed Jesus, they were saying to the Pharisees, I don't belong to you. You aren't the gatekeeper between me and God. Jesus is. And they followed him. And the Pharisees hated him for it. We stand with Paul saying we've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer us who live, but Christ who lives in us. So, why is Jesus saying all this? It feels like kind of a downer. Well, he says why. In verse 1 of chapter 16, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. And in verse 4 he says, But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. So he's preparing them. So one of the ways that he's preparing them is so they wouldn't be surprised. He didn't want them to lose hope because they were caught off guard and blindsided by the fact that people turned on them. He said it would happen. If you're reading along with us in the the Bible reading plan, then you would have read Luke 12. Where Jesus says this very interesting phrase, which seems to contradict some things, which we're going to get to. But in Luke 12, 51, he says, Do you think I have come to give peace on earth? And as we think of all of our Christmas hymns, we think, yeah, right? says, no, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Boy, ain't that the truth. It's kind of an interesting statement for Jesus. Now, by the way, side note, This is why we talk about the motives for speaking truth are really important. Because it does not take much to see how Satan could take this and twist it and use it for your destruction. 
So every daughter-in-law in the world who says, my mother-in-law hates me, but guess what? Jesus told me that was going to happen, so I must be in line with him. It doesn't work, right? Like we understand that just because people hate you doesn't mean they're hating you because of Jesus. You might just be a jerk. And we've got to name that and realize that that's the case. But what Jesus is saying here is that the kingdom of heaven is invading the dark kingdom. And he is not invading the dark kingdom to make peace with it. but to destroy it and to rescue his children. He came to separate the wheat from the chaff, the sheep from the goats, the repentant from the unrepentant. And he knew that when light comes piercing and flooding into darkness, that even the ties that you would have thought were so strong Even the blood ties that would have been even stronger. You think that up here we understand the the ties of blood and family up here? It's nothing compared to the first century here. And he's saying even those ties will not be able to handle what is coming. The way of Jesus will not make everyone live happily ever after. We should not be surprised when conflict happens when the kingdom of light invades the kingdom of darkness. Don't be surprised. That's why Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Look, if you expect that following Jesus will make your life easy, then you will be severely disappointed. If you think that by getting right with God, your business will succeed, your your health will flourish, all your relationships will be wonderful, then I have to tell you that is likely not the case. Does he do that? Do we have stories of of God healing people and reconciling relationships? Yes, and all of those things, all those beautiful things are glimpses of the kingdom. But what he's saying is here and now, those kingdoms are at war. In Christ, we can also rejoice in our sufferings because in doing so, we identify with him Do you see the pattern that's going on here? It's our identifying with Jesus that creates all of this. So if you don't want to be hated by the world, if you don't want to share in sufferings, then by all means, do not identify with Jesus. Find some other camp that you can at least identify with that you know, as long as I say these things and put this vibe out there, then this camp will accept me. By all means, do that. But what Jesus is talking about is preparing his disciples. If you are going to abide in me, just talked about abiding in him and bearing fruit. If you're going to do that, this is what's going to happen. So he warns us so we wouldn't be surprised and blindsided. He also warns them so that when that happens, when those trials come, our response wouldn't change. That we would know the game plan doesn't change. So what did Jesus say his commandment was? To love one another. And he warns them, hey, the world's not going to love that you love one another. That's just not going to happen. And he does that in part so we would know when that happens, nobody could lead us astray by saying, well, hey, that whole love thing didn't work. Now it's time for some real business. 
Like we got to do something else. We got to change strategies. That whole like it was great to love and be kind and be gracious and gentle and humble. That was all awesome when they let us pray in schools. But now they don't. So now we got to change our, motive, our, our tactics. Look, there are people who will tell you that we have to fight to, t- to keep God in our schools and in our country. And their weapons are hate and anger and shame and mocking and sometimes even violence. But that is not the way of Jesus. And so he tells us so that we know that yes, and even if they kill us, we will stay the course and we will love one another. There are people who will try to convince you that that is a naive way of looking at the world. I cannot tell you how many times it has been implied over these last few years that I am naive or worse, that I am a fool, that I don't understand what's going on, that I don't understand how serious things are. And that's fine. I take some comfort knowing that the early church would have been seen that way also. They were accused of being naive and uneducated and foolish. You know what they were never accused of? Hate, condescension, arrogance, greed. They were seen as foolish for giving away all their money. They were seen as weak for turning the other cheek. Evidently also for rhyming. And ultimately, it was infuriating to people around them because they were unaffected by all their shows of strength and their unveiling of threats. Imagine how infuriating that would be to pull them forward in front of you and to say, what is this you're doing? Stop preaching the name of Jesus. And you're looking, you're, you're powerful and you've been educated in all the best schools and you've been seen as holy and everyone normally trembles before you and now you look out in front of you and you see common uneducated men saying to you not getting angry about it but just saying hey you know you can tell us whatever you want but we gotta we kind of gotta obey God and they say don't preach the name of Jesus and they're just like yeah well that's what we're going to continue to do infuriated them I don't have a fraction of the faith and the courage that those men had, but that's who I'm following. We all have to make that choice. To whom do you belong? Where is your allegiance? The day is coming, and I think quickly here in this country, that we will have to plant a flag. The question is, what is on that flag? Is it, is it moralism? Is it stars and stripes? Is it an elephant? Is it theology or is it Jesus? Peter, in talking to the church as they are exiled, says, for, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. 
He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Look, he's given us an example. And we are to follow it. It grieves me when we feel like we can't follow the way of Jesus, that somehow following the way of Jesus is naive or weak. I mean, this is what is going on. I mean, just imagine being in the early church. I mean, just imagine hearing all those things and knowing what Jesus had taught and then seeing your brother or your sister being hauled away and killed. I mean, can you imagine the temptation? Look, I get it. I mean, I think if I was there and we're in a house church, which, by the way, this is happening right now across the world. You could be sitting, worshiping with brothers and sisters, being known for nothing but loving one another, and authorities come in and rip somebody away, and you never see them again. And I got to be honest with you. If I'm sitting in that room, I'm feeling a lot like Peter and ready to draw my sword. I don't want to pretend like it's not understandable that you get frustrated and that you want to fight back. But what I'm saying is that is not of Jesus. And if we would trust him, we would lay that down. Peter also says, keep your conduct among Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Look, I believe these things are coming, but let me just say this. When, he says, when they speak of you as evildoers. He's basically telling them, make sure that when this happens, they don't have anything they can point to. Like when the gospel becomes banned hate speech. I want somebody to come in and tell our local school how evil and horrible we are and how we have to be stopped. Because I want them to say, well, you mean the people who are volunteering and helping our kids? Yes, them. Okay. I want them to go to our courts and have them say, look, these, this church needs to be stopped. We need to take care of them. Wait, you mean the, the people who are volunteering their time to stand with kids who are in the court system? Yeah, them. I want them to go to the city and say, like, we've got to shut them down. Shut them down completely. And have them say, you mean the people who are feeding our hungry? And housing our homeless and giving homes to our orphans? Look, in doing that, we will do what Jesus said to do, which is we will bear witness to the one who is not of this world, but the one who created this world and gave himself up for it. 
So he tells them these things to prepare them so that they would not lose hope, so that they would not lose their way, and that they would be strengthened and encouraged. So I'll close with this. In John 16, later on, John 16, in 20, um, chapter 20, verse 20, it says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Like he's saying right now, you're going to weep and lament. Those are good emotions. Weep for our country. Lament at the destruction that sin causes in our own hearts first and then in the hearts of others and the lives of others. Weep over that. Pray for hearts to turn and to repent. Even in the face of the world rejoicing over those things. Jesus is saying, you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. This is how God works. What the enemy intends for evil, God means for good. What the world thinks will destroy you, God uses to make you stronger. I don't know why we act surprised when it's what he does. He tells us all the time that's how he works. He doesn't say your sorrow will go away. He says, in effect, your sorrow will die and it will be resurrected as joy. Do you see the hope in that? Your pain or suffering on earth will not just go away when Jesus returns. It will be put to death and it will be resurrected in joy. And he goes on and he explains more specifically what he's going to do. And, and I love how the disciples react. If you look down in verse 29, it says his disciples said, Ah, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. Now listen, he says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Wait a second. Isn't that contradicting what he says when he says, I didn't come to bring peace? No. Because look at closely what he says. In the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. A spiritual battle wages all around us and in us. But there is peace between you and God through Jesus. And because of that, you can have peace on earth even though that war rages around you. You will have trouble here. But take heart. I love that phrase, that word. We don't have a good English word for that. Take heart. It's like this. The, the picture is Jesus holding a discouraged face in his hands and lifting up their head and saying, have courage. Take heart. Have courage. In this world, you're going to have trouble, but I have overcome the world and you belong to me. It's not a rah-rah speech. 
It's not working them up into a frenzy. It's him holding them and saying, I've got you. Do not be afraid. Do not worry. It's meant to strengthen us and encourage us so that when those things happen, we will know he's the Messiah. If that's the case, then everything else he has said is true. I just want you to listen to these things. So one of the things I marvel at, and I wish I could experience fully, is when the disciples first realized Jesus rose from the dead, I wonder, did all the things that Jesus flooded, say, flood their minds? And all of a sudden they're like, wait! That means everything he said was true. And I could go all over the Gospels for these kinds of things, but let's just expand our series and go one chapter before in John 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. I encourage you just read chapter 14 today. It is an encouragement because we know he is who he says he is. He has done what he says he has done. And we know then that he will do what he says he will do. Church, he is risen. He's not a martyr who just serves as a moral example. He is risen. Through him all things were created. In him all things are redeemed. By him all things are renewed. And for him all things will be glorified. He knows you. You belong to him. You do not belong to the world. So do not be surprised when they hate you. And that includes the world inside of the church. You do not belong to a party or a platform or an economic system or to a country belong to Jesus because he chose you. And we will demonstrate that for, by our love for one another. And through that, he will accomplish all that he has aimed to accomplish. Let's pray. Father, there's just so much here. God, would you forgive us, forgive me, for ways in which I have participated in a battle against flesh and blood on all sides. There is indeed a battle and a war that is waging, but it is not with my neighbor. It is with the prince of darkness who seeks to destroy. God, help us to overcome evil with good. Help us to be faithful to you, trusting that you are working all things together for good, for those who love you and are called according to your purpose. To know that you have called us to respond to evil with good. So by doing so, heaping coals, this idea, God, that you are taking care of everything, we don't have to, we're not in your seat Jesus, you have said you will come back. You have told us 
Stay the course. Do not be troubled. Have courage. So God, forgive us. We know you are patient with us as we struggle with that. It is hard for us to receive, but let us receive it and let us enjoy and in faith obey you. Put to death every impure way in us and let us live as your ambassadors. Let us be united in that. In Jesus' name, amen.